Let me ask you, why are you eating? You just had a meal two, two hours ago. Why do you have to eat again? Are you hungry? You're not hungry? Oh, no, but I have to eat. Why? Because, two things. One, you're a junkie. You're an addict. You're an addict. Just like cocaine, just like heroin, you're an addict. Because that sugar goes to the same part of the brain as dopamine. So it gives you that reward center. So now, you have to have your next high. You're a junkie. So that's the biggest problem, why we eat so frequently. Number two is we've been socially indoctrinated to eat. It's time to eat. So I don't have an urge or anything, yeah, and if I don't eat, I'm not going to get cravings that I've got to go eat, I've got to go eat. No, but it's just, it's one o'clock, so I've got to go eat. Now I'm saying, why do you have to do that? Who said you've got to eat three meals a day and two snacks? The food industry said that. You didn't say it. Your doctor didn't say it. So I want you all to now have conscious feeding. Conscious feeding. That means you eat when you're hungry. If you're not hungry, don't eat. You're not going to die. Because, you see, what it also does, it detoxes you. Fasting detoxifies you because you've got all these heavy metals in you and toxins. Fasting is the only thing that gets rid of toxins. Number two, it gives your gut a break so that the bacteria in your gut can reset. Because if you're constantly eating those poor bacteria, and remember, more than 50% of the nutrients that are floating inside your bloodstream are not what you ate. It's what your bacteria have made, metabolized, and released into your bloodstream. Did you hear that? Intermittent fasting is the only way to get toxins out of your bloodstream. Who knew? Who knew that fasting could have such incredible health benefits, could be good for your gut? I didn't until very recently. And I must tell you, that's one of the reasons why I'm very, very interested in the program that we're going to have tonight. Because, you know, we have already told you a little bit about the value of intermittent fasting because our two doctors, uh, Paul Merrick and Pierre Corey, both have been doing some intermittent fasting. They've lost weight. They look great. And of course, it's in our protocols for serious fighting, serious disease. But there's so much more to know. And we are so thrilled to have a very special guest here tonight who is going to be explaining a great deal more about this. We have a London and Yale trained cardiologist who is practicing in Orlando, Florida, and he's calling in from Orlando, Florida to be with us. And Dr. Pradip Jamnadas, who is a true expert in the subject of intermittent fasting, who can really help us with how to do it best and what it means to our health, to our bodies, um, how incredibly important it is. So I'm just Betsy Ashton. I'm the, you know, I'm the creative director of this alliance of doctors and nurses and other medical professional professionals and their supporters. And we are people who try to educate you on what is best to keep your health up and to defeat COVID and other very dangerous and difficult diseases. And so we are here tonight to do a little bit more of that. And I must say that, um, 
We have nurses already on behind the scenes. If you type in your questions into Q&A, they will be able to answer all throughout the program. And I'll be back also with some of those questions to pose to our two doctors, because Paul Marek is here with us tonight, and also Dr. Jamnatis. So they will be happy to answer some of the tougher questions that you have, or that may well apply to just about all of us. And when I say all of us, believe me, I have been a sugar addict. I was never able to have a pint of ice cream in the freezer because I would eat the whole thing. Sugar addict? Absolutely. True confession. So doctors, help us out. Come on. Thanks, Betsy. Um, so I'm going to start sharing my screen. Welcome, Pradeep. It's really an honor and a privilege to have him here with us tonight. I heard him lecturing on um, intermittent fasting, and I said to myself, that's the man we need to talk to. He's just so smart. He's so articulate. And believe it or not, he's a cardiologist of all things. Um, but he, he understands this topic. So just to start off, the good news is we have updated our protocol. It's called Eat Well. What a, what a name, Eat Well. So it's our new guide to intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, and healthy eating habits. And as we know, that lifestyle change and is something which is something which you do for good and is the key to, to health, happiness, and longevity. So what's in our protocol? We're going to talk about how eating became unhealthy. We're going to talk about flattening the glucose curve. We're going to talk about the benefits of intermittent fasting, and uh, Pradeep is going to go into much detail. We're going to talk about how to get started. We're going to talk about what to eat and what not to eat. We're going to talk about intermittent fasting and cancer. And then for all the women out there, we've had so many questions about fasting for women. So we're going to talk about that. So who, who, who's, who is this for? Well, basically, the benefits of intermittent fasting are truly astonishing. And it's probably the most effective way to uh, improve your health, to lose weight, to manage diabetes, to manage um insulin resistance to prevent diabetes, to prevent dementia, to prevent cancer. Uh, it truly is an astonishingly effective intervention. And what makes it so fascinating is it costs you nothing. It's one of the few medical interventions for which you don't pay anything. And so the benefits of, of, of intermittent fasting are truly astonishing. Uh, you can see the list here in terms of its effects on insulin sensitivity, it induces autophagy, it's great for patients with chronic inflammation, uh, improves mental memory and, and mental clarity. There's a big difference between starvation and intermittent fasting. So patients who intermittent fast don't starve. This is not a form of starvation so that your growth hormone levels go up and your basal metabolic rate stays the same. So autophagy, as we've spoken before, and Dr. Bean has spoken, is the cell's garbage disposal system, which gets activated by, uh, by intermittent fasting. The most uh, efficient way to activate autophagy is intermittent fasting. And so this is a book I recently read by the glucose goddess, and she talks about a number of hacks 
to flatten your blood glucose curve. And this is really important because high blood glucose has serious adverse effects, particularly uh, if you're diabetic, if you have cancer. So the order in which you eat food makes a big difference. So you can see uh, here on the right, if you have carbohydrate and then greens versus if you switch it around, you eat broccoli, then you eat the rice because this slows down GI absorption and it slows down the metabolism. And the other really interesting um, little hack, as she calls it, is if you take some, some uh, vinegar uh, prior to eating a starch meal, particularly, it, it, tempts, it, it flattens the glucose curve. And then, of course, there are things to eat that are food. This is real food here, vegetables, nuts, chicken, eggs. There's nothing wrong with eggs, chia seeds. And then there are the things that you don't want to eat. So these are the toxins. These are the poisons. This is the glucose to which you're all addicted. And the, the, the food industry has made you addicted. There are addicted genisons in all the food we eat to make you addicted, donuts, bagels, processed foods. And so the nice thing about intermittent fasting, as Dr. Uh, Nuttis will tell us, is, is you can adapt it to any lifestyle. There's no, no such thing as, as you can't do it. And there are different ways of doing it that you can adapt to your own lifestyle. You know, one of the most common is time-based feeding where you fast for 16 to 20 hours and eat the rest. But you can do the 5-2 fast where you eat for five days and fast for two days. So one of the things that I would recommend, we'll see what Dr. Jamnadis has to say, is continuous glucose monitoring because it's a very individualized response. And this way you can determine what, what, what you do and what you eat, what it does to your blood glucose level. And then we're going to talk about women who are menstruating. And it seems that, you and we'll talk about this, that there's this idea of cycling the intermittent fasting according to the phases of the cycle. So the first 10 days or, or uh, uh, insulin is a state of insulin sensitivity and it's good for uh, a keto low carb diet. But then in post ovulation phase, when progesterone levels go up, one tends to become insulin resistant and then one tends to, one should perhaps cut down um, on intermittent fasting, uh, trying to avoid uh, strict ketosis. And we'll talk a little bit about this, and it is on our protocol in terms of um, linking intermittent fasting with the menstrual cycle. And then obviously in menopause, it's really important to rebalance your hormone levels because uh, menopause is associated with insulin resistance. One of the best ways of dealing with this is intermittent fasting. Berberine is, is, uh, adds to, to the metabolic benefit. Obviously, exercise, reducing stress, and getting enough sleep. So that's my little schnick. And so welcome, Pradeep. Um, the stage is yours. Oh, thank you, Paul. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for making this happen. And you all are very kind. And it's wonderful to be here and so excited because you all are excited about knowing about intermittent fasting. So a friend of mine told me he stopped doing intermittent fasting. And he said, 
and I said, why? He says, oh, because other people are saying it's a bad thing to do. So I said, what are they doing? Oh, they're only eating once a day. I said, but that is intermittent fasting. So Paul, you started out defining what is intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting has so many different ideas of what people think it is. Basically, just get out of what we're doing today. Today's lifestyle is not intermittent fasting. You get up in the morning, you have your three meals and you have three, four snacks in between and you're, in the, you're having food in the elevator, you're having food in the car, you're having food on your drive home and, and as soon as you get home, you eat something and then you have a late, late night snack. All that has to stop. This is unnatural. You know, when you're a caveman, you made one kill and then you ate that kill and then maybe a few hours later finished the rest of it up because there was no refrigerator. And that's how our body was designed for millions and millions of years. So this whole intermittent fasting is not something new. It's something in us. We already have it in us. And we were built this way. We were designed this way from the beginning. So I am so glad that all of you and Paul are so interested in getting back to the ancient wisdom of our physiology. That's what this is all about. This is nothing crazy. This is not a fad. This is not going to go away. This is something that's going to stay forever. This is going to be something that we're going to do on the USS Enterprise when I go on, on board. It's going to be there all the time. So it's because we haven't been doing it that we're seeing the largest epidemic of obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obstructive sleep apnea, everything with cardiovascular disease, cancer. Look, if we're so good, how come these numbers are going in the wrong direction? We're spending trillions of dollars on band-aiding instead of taking care of the real problem. And this is so important. And Paul, you, you, you are so right. We are on the, on the cutting edge. If we don't do this, not only are we gonna suffer individually, our family members, our society, but even economically, we're looking at a national disaster unless we take care of these chronic non-communicable diseases, which are all related to how we eat, what we eat, how often we eat. So that, that, that's huge. I mean, to me, I think what we're doing here has huge repercussions for, and we're exporting this to the rest of the world, by the way. So the yes. rest of the world is suffering too. Yeah, so what you say is that this is not a diet. This is not a fad. This is a lifestyle choice that you make and should become a permanent part of your lifestyle. Because as you said, the way we eat is completely unphysiological. I mean, it's estimated people spend about 14 hours a day eating. That's all they seem to do is eat and snack and nonstop. And that's not the way our body was designed. So, and then, you know, what, is, what happens is we become... As you said in your introduction, you be, we become addicted to glucose and sugar. And as we know, sugar is more addicting than cocaine. So it then creates this vicious cycle of insulin resistance, which then blocks your leptin and ghrelin. And then so you become hungry and you eat more and your glucose goes up and it makes you more insulin resistant. So we have to break the cycle of continually snacking and obviously snacking on processed food. It's not really food. It's, it's synthetic glucose. Would you agree? I agree with that a hundred percent. That's not real food. We became addicted to a substance and this substance is sugar. 
And that's, that's how we first got hypnotized into this lifestyle and eating, and then we got hooked. And this was not in our benefit. This was done by industry, basically. And, and, and here we are now. now. Now we are all junkies and we hooked on, on sugar. Did you know that more than 70% of everything that you go and buy in the supermarket has sugar in it? And more, and right now, ultra-processed foods. This is important. Kids today, more than 60% of the calories are coming from ultra-processed foods. Those are not foods. Don't even call them foods. They're putting chemicals into the body. They're putting substances into the body. Now, how natural is that? Yeah, you know probably the done? worst thing a parent can do for a child is these breakfast cereals, which are not food. These are synthetic manufactured products that are full of refined sugar and carbohydrates. It has no nutritional value. So we are we're bringing up children, we, we're training them to be glucose and carbohydrate addicts. So there's sugar in it, then they put the wrong oils in it, they put all the vegetable seed oils, which are also processed. You see, many people think that oils are just oils. No, if you went to look at the oil processing plant where they get these oils out of the seeds, you will not touch oil again. It is so horrible. They have to deodorize it, decolorize it, and then they, they, they put hexane through it. And finally, they get this, this golden oil out there. And on my videos, I talk about how vegetable oils came up and why the industry uses that vegetable oil. It's not for your health. The vegetable oils are very inflammatory. So one of the things we talk about is what to eat. And of course, intermittent fasting. But when you do it, don't eat products that are made in a factory. Why would you eat a product that's made in a factory? That's not even real food. And vegetable oils is one of them. So they have that, they have colorings, they have preservatives. And then they also have what is known as, and we haven't talked about this much with, with, with this audience, is advanced glycation end products. So, you know, Paul, we talk about the combination of sugar with protein, the amino part, and you that's called the Maillard reaction, right? That's, that's the browning effect, and that's the aging effect. So now these molecules are dysfunctional. But this reaction doesn't only occur with glucose, it occurs with alcohol and a lot of other things as well. But processed foods have a lot of advanced glycation end products, and they also disrupt your physiology. So now look, look at us, look at us. We're hooked. We're eating too frequently and we're eating the wrong foods. And those foods have advanced glycation end products, they have vegetable seed oils, and they're full of sugar. And the biggest thing they're lacking is fiber. Hence, you have your definition of processed foods. Lacking in fiber and then having all this other stuff in it, which you don't want. And then we hooked it. So now you yeah. go, Paul, this is what we're dealing with today. Yeah, so Pradeep, if someone says you, okay, I want to do time-restricted feeding, intermittent fast, how do I start? How would you recommend they start? Okay, so if you're still doing all this food, you're not going to be able to do intermittent fasting. So the first thing I do in my patients, okay, I sit them down and I say, look, the first thing you need to do is change your diet. And you're going to do that for about three weeks. That means all processed foods have to go out. So you can still have your three meals, but you've got to cut out all your processed foods. You've got to eat real food. It's got to look like food in your plate and it's got to look like that in nature. 
and there's no bread on the trees, there's no spaghetti coming down the trees, and, and, and there's no pasta in bushes. So you got to eat real food. I want you to cut out all your juices. I want you to cut out all your, uh, all your snacks, of course, right? And I also make them cut down on fruit. I make them eat only one fruit a day. So it's whole foods. I tell them that the meats are fine, so long as they are high quality meats and try to go for grass finished foods, uh, meats. So I basically put them on my diet first for a couple of weeks. Now, what does that do? That already starts your process of detoxifying them from all these chemicals and getting some sugar out of the body, introducing more fiber because they're eating more whole foods. So I first changed the diet. Then I introduced the intermittent fasting. So I say, okay, for two to three weeks, this is what you're gonna eat. And I have my chart, similar to the chart that you just showed just now. That's a great chart, by the way. It shows real food. So I said, this is what you're supposed to be eating, okay? So go ahead, eat. Don't start your intermittent fasting yet, but just cut out the snacks because those are all processed foods. Three weeks. So the average patient does that for three weeks. Then I say, okay, now after three weeks, you should already be feeling better. Now, the next step is choose a meal to skip. Today, I'll miss lunch. Next, tomorrow, I'll miss dinner. Day after that, I might not have breakfast. And do that for at least another two weeks. So for two weeks now, they just randomly skip eight meals. And I say, okay, so what happened? You didn't die. You didn't, you didn't commit suicide. You felt fine. In fact, you felt great. You missed your meals. Now you know that you can live without that meal. You know that it wasn't necessary to have breakfast or lunch or dinner that day. And you empower yourself because, you know, this sticking to this lifestyle means you need to empower yourself. So I'm psychologically working on them. Got rid of some chemicals. Now I'm giving them the power that look what you did. You skipped these meals and you'd survive. Do that for about two to three weeks. After that, then I say, okay, now you're going to do your structured thing. So you're going to say, okay, which two meals are best for me? Two meals. You see, I still haven't come to one, one meal a day. For the next two weeks, you're going to have two meals a day and choose your two meals that you're going to have. I'm going to have lunch and dinner, but I say, but you've got to squeeze it in, squeeze it in, do it within six hours. So you're going to have a late lunch and early dinner or breakfast and lunch and no dinner. So you're going to still have your two meals. So again, you see, I'm gradually working it up. And I said, look what happened. Your evenings were fine. You see, you felt okay. Nothing happened to you. And I say, I, I tell him, you know, okay, so when you go out with your friends, what you should do or do your chores in the evening, keep your mind busy. It's psychological withdrawal as well as real chemical withdrawal. It's both, you're a Pavlovian dog and you're also a junkie all combined in one. So you got to move with both things. So I'm changing their lifestyle as well. I'm empowering them to make them feel better about themselves. Then two weeks later, now I say, okay, now we're going to really start your intermittent fasting at this point. Now, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you're even going to skip the lunch or the dinner. Just have one meal only. So, and the rest of the days, you're going to have your two meals. So you're gradually working up, gradually. Now they, in fact, what happens in about 50% of the patients is after six weeks, they themselves want to go to see eating only once a day. But basically, I'm empowering them to make that change. And they feel very positive about the changes that they are making. And that's what really works. And then I give them clues what to do. 
What, what to do if you're not feeling good? What do you do if you would feel that you're withdrawing? What if you do if you're really hungry? What do you do if you start getting cramps in your legs? And I give them clues on what to do for those and we can talk about those in a minute. So by now it's about six weeks. And you know what, just doing this alone, they've already lost 10 pounds. So again, doing it gradually and not throwing them straight into intermittent fasting, I'm giving them positive feedback. Look, 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 you already lost 10 pounds and you saved money. You, you don't go crazy, right? Your wife is still with you. Your husband's still with you. Everyone's still around. Your kids can tolerate you also. Okay, fine. Look how great you did. Work slowly into it. You cannot take a patient who's sitting in front of me weighing 300 pounds and say, okay, from tomorrow, you're going to start eating one meal a day uh, because that's how your ancestors used to eat and that's what your biochemistry is made of. I can't, I can't do that. The metabolic flexibility that I want to get into his body, metabolic flexibility, where he's on glucose metabolism and then ketone metabolism, storing, taking it out again. To do that, to build that flexibility takes time. You can't do it overnight. So you gradually get into it. And that also gives us an opportunity to talk. So then, you know, they'll come and they'll talk to my staff or my nutritionist and, and they'll talk to me and I give them a lot of positive feedback on it. Now, at that point, then I've, that's when I finally decide that, okay, so what's my goal here? So you, you weigh 280 pounds, you've got coronary artery disease, you have pre-diabetes, your doctor told you you don't have diabetes. I'm telling you, you do because your insulin levels are really high because I measure them. Now I really want to gear this up to my next level. That's when I'll start telling them, okay, now I want a three-day fast from you because you will not go through withdrawal. You see, the worst thing I can do is tell someone to do a three-day water fast, and then they'll stop going through withdrawal, and then they come and make my life miserable over here. Oh, God. I don't no. By this time, the three-day water fast will be very easy for them to do because I gradually got into it. The biggest mistake people make is they go right into it right away. I am going to do it. I am going to do it. But you can't do it. Your body has been doing all this other physiology for such a long time. You can't change it just so quickly. And your insulin sensitivity has to come back, your, your leptin resistance has to go away, your fatty liver has to slowly change, your metabolism, your gut microbiome has to change. Gosh, there's so many things that are changing when you're doing this. So that all takes time. So you don't put the body into a shock. So this is what my trick is, I do it slowly. So the question I have is some people claim they just can't fast, that there's absolutely no way they can fast um, and that they, they just can't do it. So my answer is no, we were, we evolved to fast. Humans can fast if you do it the way you describe. And the reason they can't fast is that they are now glucose addicts. They, they, they addicted to glucose the same way as they addicted to alcohol. And the only way to break alcohol addiction like glucose addiction is to break the addiction. So you just have to do it. Um, and do it slowly, but you have to realize the reason you think you can't fast and the reason you have to snack all the time, like eating a snack every two hours, is because you're now addicted to glucose and you're getting that dopamine surge and you insulin resistance. So you have to break the cycle. Would you agree with that? I agree 100% with that. I think that, 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 that they, they have to, and many times the patients come and say, oh, I was so hungry, I felt so bad, then I ate and I felt better. So I said, so why did you feel bad? Why? Oh, my sugar probably dropped. 
And I said, yeah, yeah, next time this happens, check your sugar level and you'll see it did not drop. So what made you feel this way? You were withdrawing. So those who can get sugar testing, I tell them to do it. When you're feeling bad, check your sugar. If your sugar level is still over 70, I can tell you this is not hypoglycemia. You don't need the sugar. You're basically just withdrawing. So that's why. So continuous glucose monitoring is going to be very helpful for many patients. And you already mentioned that, right? And we can talk about that in a second. But basically, I'm just telling them that check your sugar because that tells you that your, your, your phenotype is really addictive addiction withdrawal. That's what's happening to you right now. Um, but yes, the way to get rid of addictions is to abstain completely, completely. So it's gonna happen for the first few days. I tell them, put warm compressors on your head, sit down, drink lots of water, have a companion, listen to music, go out. You're gonna feel terrible the first few times if, if you're going through that. But I said, after maybe three, four days, it'll all be gone and then you're gonna be free. And that's why I just make them skip one meal at a time. I say, okay, fine. So put compressors and wait till six o'clock. You're gonna be eating at six o'clock anyway. Because remember, I just told him to miss one meal first. Just wouldn't miss one meal. So those are the worst addicts and you really think that they are the ones who are giving you the spiel that you're talking about. Make them just skip one meal and say, just hang on. You can hang on five more hours. You're gonna be going home and eating at six o'clock. So that's how you get rid of that withdrawal from them. But so the next yeah. question is, are there any diseases, you know, many, many, many people in our Western society are chronically ill. So are there any particular diseases in which you think you shouldn't do intermittent fasting? And so the only one I really know is if you are type one diabetic, you have to be careful. Otherwise, you know, I think if you take it carefully, do it cautiously, as you've described, let your bad body speak to you. I think there are very few diseases that will not be um, improved. Um, the symptoms will alleviate with them. Um, some form of intermittent fasting. 100% correct, Paul. Type one diabetics, they're, they're a problem, and uh, I won't, I would not, 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 not encourage them to do fasting. Um, you know, it, it's it's going to be very hard work. But everybody else is a candidate for it, and I mean everybody else, except of course the the pregnant women. I don't I don't make them fast. But uh, disease wise, type one diabetes. Pregnancy, I tell them not to fast, of course. You, 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 you need to be um, a little different. So no, it, it can apply to everybody, everybody, including if you have cancer. In fact, more so if you have cancer. And, and, and the, my, my uh, um, patients who have hyperinsulinemia, they, they have to fast. They're the perfect patient. So you know how I got into this, Paul. I'll just digress a little bit. I'll tell you a story. So, you know, I'm an, a cardiologist, so I do angioplasties. So I, I get a patient. He's not diabetic. I cat him. I find disease. I stent him. And then a few months later, he needs another stent. And another year later, he needs another stent. I said, do you have diabetes? No. I don't. And your cholesterol? Oh, yeah, it's under perfect control. And, and then what happened is that I took 100 patients like that, and I just randomly did a glucose tolerance test on all of them, even though they didn't have diabetes. And I found out that 70% of them were either glucose intolerant or they had, uh, um, uh, 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 or they had borderline diabetes. So then I, that's when I started getting into insulin to say, that, okay, so what's wrong with these patients? Why are they so sick if they don't have diabetes? And I found that, that oh my God. And I started reading all, reading all the literature from Yudkin and those people who had actually defined all this in the 70s, that it's all got to do with high insulin levels and insulin resistance. And 
Then I took those patients and made them started, start taking metformin, even though they didn't have diabetes. And I saw dramatic results. And then I started making them lose weight. And I saw even better results. So I saw the insulin levels coming down, down, down. You see, today, metabolic syndrome and hyperinsulinemia is so prevalent. We've been running into a huge, huge problem. If you take all your diabetic patients, and if you take your hypertensive patients, dyslipidemic patients with high triglycerides and low HDLs, they all, all have insulin resistance. They're, they're, and that is more atherogenic than having a high glucose level. If you have high glucose in your blood, that's going to hurt you through the advanced glycation end products. But if you have high insulin in your body, that is a real bit. Insulin destroys nitric oxide production, so you get vasoconstriction. It, is, it, it promotes muscle proliferation. So you get small, smooth muscle proliferation that causes atherosclerosis. It causes hypertension. It causes salt retention in, in the body. So it promotes atherosclerosis. So all your, and you realize all your blood vessels. It's insulin's the problem. So what we've done is we have hormonally changed the population hormonally through our diets and foods that we've done. So we are no longer the hormonal patient that we used to be, the perfect hormonal balance. That's a huge problem. So to me, it started with insulin, that we are no longer the human beings we used to be because we are yeah. all hyperinsulinemic. Yeah, no, no, we agree. This is all hyperinsulinemia. So now the question is, we get a lot of questions from menstruating women and, and you know, questions about, you know, what it does to the menstrual cycle and how to, you know, how to do this when, you know, when they're menstruating. So what is, what is your recommendation? Presumably, you start off the same way as you described is, you know, first eat real food, you know, check, you know, dump all the processed food, eat real food, and then maybe skip one, one, one meal a day. And then the question is, what, what do you do next? What would yeah. you recommend next? Yeah. Uh, uh, you, go, you know, I, I see much older patients. So, but, but, the younger women that I do see, fortunately, because I gradually get them into this, they're okay. And I don't, you see, I don't want to cause that hormonal shock because we do know that when you, when you do this type of change, your hormone levels change, right? So there's no doubt that your insulin, we talk about it, but that doesn't mean that your LH and your FSH is not going to change and your estrogen levels are not going to change. Of course, they're going to change as well. There are hormonal changes that are going to occur in the body as a result of insulin changing and you're doing the fasting. That's definitely true. But in my experience, I've not had too many people complain about the menstrual cycles and the fertilities and that type of problems because I do it gently. That's the first thing. And secondly, those who did have it, those who did have it, they were already so sick and they were hormonally so borderline controlled already that, they, 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 that all they had to do is start some intermittent fasting and now behold, they get either amenorrhea or, or the cycles are just uh, going off. So I just did very gradually with those women. I've not had any issue with them. And as for the first phase and the second phase, um, I personally have not seen that much. I know there's some literature on that, as you alluded to. Uh, so my, my thing is that, look, just do it gradually and do it slowly, but you can get into it. Everything yeah, so I think that makes so much sense is, you know, to do it exactly the way you've described it. Do it slowly, do it gradually, do it progressively. Um, the first key, obviously, is to eat food, real food, and you know, discard all the processed food and then change, change your diet slowly. 
and then, you know, skip, skip breakfast and then skip a meal now and then. And I think that's the easiest way to break this addiction we have. And then women can, can monitor what happens to this cycle and see how they do. I think that if, if they get into this eating habit change too quickly and they get stressed out about it, that in itself can cause menstrual problems. You know, the hypothalamus goes crazy and, and that can cause menstrual problems as well. So really it's, it's not only the food that's gonna change your hormones and everything else. Okay, fine. I also talked to them about stress management. Sleep, very important. You see, this whole thing has to be holistic. They've been deranged. They've become abnormal. We have to change everything. We not only change their diet, we also talk to them about sleep. I talk to them about stress management. What do you do for stress management? What do you do? I teach them how to breathe. Inspiration, expiration, abdominal breathing. You got to teach them abdominal breathing. Everyone's holding the breath up here. But you should be taking shorter inspirations and longer expirations. You get more vagal activity and vagal tonic movements. So I talk to them about that as well. I talk to them about, about the, getting to bed at, at a good time. And at midnight, you have a date with your, with your growth hormone and, and, and you, you therefore have to be in bed by midnight and your testosterone levels are going to spike at midnight. I talk to them about that. I talk to them about some form of movement, exercise as well. All this in concert with the dietary changes. That's when I'm seeing the best results possible. We yeah, do the whole so, so, I mean, I must agree with you that the key to this is diet, food, exercise, sleep. Some people think they can get away with three or four hours of sleep. And the data really strongly disproves that, that sleep is so important for brain recovery. So we need at least six or seven hours of sleep. We need stress management because you know anyone who wears a glucose monitor can tell the effect that stress has on your on your hormones. And so, you know, it, it's pointless trying to cut down on, you know, processed food when you're so highly stressed with release of steroids and catecholamines that are pushing up your, your glucose. So one has to deal with methods of, of relaxation and stress management. Yeah, I, I go through this with them in detail. That look, one night bad sleep, you're going to be insulin resistant the next day. And they go, what? I say, yes. So you're going to gain weight the next day. Oh my God. So you mean to say I can lose weight sleeping? Yes. I can change my metabolism by sleeping more? Yes. One night's bad sleep, you're going to be insulin resistant the next day. And these studies have been done. Number two, circadian pattern recognition. If you, you should do this yourself. If you eat at night, for example, you'll find that you don't get as good sleep you gain more weight. Now, in rats, I'm just going to give you this example, okay, in rats. And of course, this has been proven in humans too. They eat at night. You start giving them the same amount of food in the daytime, they all become metabolic. That means they get metabolic syndrome, okay? Then you take the same calories in the daytime and you cut it by 20% and they do a little bit better. But now you cut down the calories by 20% and give it to them all at night. Now they lose an added 20% weight. So, so you've got to be in your, in, your, in your cycle. We humans are not supposed to be eating at night. We're not supposed to be drinking after eight o'clock at night either. We should be sleeping. Uh, so I tell all my patients, find the day that time that you feel the best after eating. And most patients will tell you it's the daytime or late afternoon. 
So I said, yeah, don't eat at night because your circadian pattern is not gonna be in sync with your caloric intake. Your circadian pattern is affected by two things, light and your food that you take in. So time it properly so you can get deeper sleep, you lose more weight naturally. And of course, de-stressing is really important. Exercise is really important. Abdominal breathing, really, really important. I mean, we are watching this video right now. How many of us are holding our breath? Instead of letting our belly come forward with each inspiration and breathing out, then the belly goes back inside, pushes instead of the lungs up here, it's all abdominal. This changes your physiology. This, yeah. this affects your weight. This affects your hormones. Um, so as you said, this is a lifestyle change. This is not just a simple diet or a simple fix. This is a whole concept of how to live a healthier lifestyle with healthier habits. So before we yes. get before <laughs> we get to questions, and I'm sure Betsy has I have a, a lot of them. Come on, give us Wait, a chance. I have a question for Pradeep because I got this question from a patient. So she's in her 70s. She had cholesterol in the 200s. The HDL was okay. The triglycerides were okay. And then she went on intermittent fasting and her cholesterol jumped up to 400. And the triglycerides stayed okay and the HDL was okay. And so she asked me what to do. Okay. So. It was, so I thought, you know, this is not the norm. This is not what normally happens is your cholesterol goes down. So I suspected this woman has um, familial hypercholesterolemia, but I, I wondered what, as a cardiologist, what you think and what you would have recommended. Okay. I see this every week in my office. Patients change their diet, they become more ketogenic. And that's when it really happens, when they're starting to spill more ketones. And by the way, I tell them to measure the ketones. So you really know that, yes, my fast is effective because I'm doing the dipsticks and I um, get a keto. Now what happens, they get acetoacetic acid, uh, acid, goes to HMG, which CoA, and then from there splits into LDL and then goes into the Krebs cycle. So what happens is that you're gonna inevitably, inevitably, your liver is going to make more LDL when you're on a ketogenic diet. Just about every patient I have that is eat on more of a ketogenic diet has massive increases in their LDL. It goes up from 200 to three, four, five. I've even seen 700 on the LDL and they all panic. So what I do with those patients, that does not translate to adverse cardiac outcomes. I explain to them the physiology that's happening. First of all, you know, they are obviously consuming more cholesterol in the diet as well. So LDL will go up. But then I look at inflammation in the body. I look at the advanced lipid panel, the particle sizes and the particle numbers. And I assure them that, no, look, your CRP is fine. Your triglyceride to HDL ratio is good. And therefore, that is the primary indicator that you have inflammation and that you're going to have a poor cardiac outcome. LDL is not the indicator. There's been a huge paradigm shift in this now. LDL is not the problem. LDL will go up. LDL is a molecule that is very complicated. It is actually an anti-inflammatory molecule. It is actually used for lipopolysaccharides to attach to them and other bacterial products and get them out of the, of the stream. So they will go down when you're inflamed. And when you're not inflamed, your LDL level will go up because they're no longer getting swiped out of the circulation by the macrophages because you have less inflammation. So LDL will go up. So your liver will make more LDL, more LDL will be in the circulation, but I reassure all these patients. 
So I do a best of a panel on them. And I just follow them. I said, look, you don't need to worry about this all day old. I do not put them on a statin. And they actually feel better and they've done well. And I've been following these patients for years now and they all do very well. With the LDL of 300, 350, my colleagues get mad at me, but I say, look, he's doing great. I don't need to put him on a statin. Yeah, so I think you're right because it's really, it's the triglyceride HDL ratio that's more predictive that, that, than LDL. And so it is a really good point that the ketones do get converted into LDL. So, you know, people don't have to be uh, concerned. Yes. Okay, Betsy, we have question time. Oh, do we ever? Uh, one of our questioners wants to know if you follow, can you follow a keto diet if you don't eat meat, for starters? Um, can you do a keto diet if you're not eating meat? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. It's just tougher. That's all. You're going to have to make some choices. Um, but you can do it. Yes, you can. Absolutely. So, okay. I mean, you just have to be creative and um, it can be done. And a lot of my patients do actually do that. Another questioner, Ari Goldberg says, does intermittent fasting get rid of all the toxins stored in our fat tissues or do we need to do a multi-day fast for that? Yeah, yeah. So you're doing a little bit of cleaning up every day when you're doing intermittent fasting. When you do the multi-day fast, you're cleaning up a whole lot more. So yeah, it is better to do the longer one and you'll actually clean up more, more toxins from your body. And remember the other way to do it, okay? Intermittent fasting does it, infrared sauna. So all my patients with severe coronary artery disease, I tell them to do infrared sauna because the incidence of sudden cardiac death goes down dramatically when you do more than three sessions a week. This is, this is amazing stuff because the hot heat shock proteins get liberated and they cause all these positive changes that are happening in the body. So I do that. So that detox, if, uh, you know, when you do infrared sauna, you sweat so much and a lot of the toxins come out of the body. That's how exercise actually also one of the ways that it, in which it helps you. Um, so there's many ways to actually detoxify. Just to ask how, so someone who's doing intermittent fasting, how frequently would you recommend a three-day fast? Once a month, every two weeks, every two months? Uh, what kind of cycle would you suggest? Yeah, it's very individual. For those whose BMI is around 25, 26, 27, they can do it once every three months or so. But for those whose BMI is much higher, and you really want to jumpstart. You know how somebody starts losing weight and they lost 30 pounds and now they're stuck and they still want to, they need to lose another 30, 40 and they're stuck. That's when I start telling them do more three-day water fast and you can do it as often as every two weeks. Every two weeks you do a three-day water fast. It's easy yeah. to do and it can be done and should be done in those types of patients. And so just, just, what are your thoughts about coffee with thick cream, you know, in people who have hunger pangs or who want to have coffee? during the day. Is that okay? It's fantastic. It does not break your, break, uh, your, your, your fast. So that's called bullet coffee. You can also put MCT oil, a tablespoon of MCT oil in your black coffee. You can take a, a quarter teaspoon of ghee and put it in there. And worst case scenario, if you're at work and that, you just take a small half a pat of butter and put it on your black coffee. And that'll take away your hunger as well. Drinking just a glass no of water. No sugar. Just no sugar. <laughs> no sugar. Basically, it's that there's no sugar and there's very little protein so that you're not going to really stimulate your insulin production. Yeah. Now, here's a question. Uh, Paul, maybe you'd like this one. What about when you need to eat uh, with iver medication such as ivermectin? Can you still fast or do you have to wait to fast until you're no longer taking medicine that would you would need food with? What would you suggest? Yeah, so that's a good question. I would say, you know, for most medicines, you can 
don't need to take it with food. There are some medicines that the absorption is better with food. Um, so for example, green tea extract, ivermectin, the absorption is better with food. So then just time your medication when you have your meal. I mean, it's not like you take it four or five times a day. So I think for most medications, it doesn't matter. But certain ones that they suggest that, you know, take it with a fatty meal, have it when you eat your meal once or twice a day. Here's someone, uh, Hila Adut wants to know, what about dark chocolate in the morning? Since I'm in menopause, is it not recommended? I'll take that. I, I love dark chocolate. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of uh, soluble fiber in it. It's extremely good for your microbiome. So by the way, fasting changes your microbiome completely completely because the the half-life of the bacteria uh, is affected by what you're eating also and how often you're eating and they change and remember there's trillions of genes that the bacteria have you only have twenty-one thousand genes so you have outsourced a lot of your work to your bacteria and the bacterial genes is changing all the time and you're taking black uh, dark chocolate you're getting all that soluble fiber coming into your system. Cacao, I love cacao. I put that on my kefir. So I take kefir, my blueberries, raspberries, and I put cacao powder on it. And there you go. That's it. Is that your only it's fruit for the day? You said only one fruit for the day. That's it. That's my fruit. That's it. Oh, dear. That's it. Oh. Because I don't like fructose. So I have trouble with that. Me, what's so bad about sugar? Ask me, what's so bad about sugar? Is it the glucose or is it the fructose? And the answer is fructose. Mm. fructose is your enemy because fructose was only supposed to be consumed in the fall getting you ready to makes you insulin resistant gain weight like crazy and changes all this so that you can go into hibernation and survive through uh, or survive through winter and for us winter never comes but we yeah, can so i think what predips is it is so important about fruit is that we shouldn't overdo it with fruit because it's really high in fructose so a little bit of fruit once a day is fine particularly things like um, blueberries, strawberries, which have a low glycemic index. But, you know, you have to be careful of fruit because, as he said, it's fructose. And it's fructose, which is really the, 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 the toxin here. And strawberries and watermelon, out? Strawberries are okay. Watermelon. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. Strawberries are okay. Bananas and watermelon. Bananas are and watermelon. Yeah. They have a high glycemic index. So... Uh, I probably best avoided fruit juices obviously are a no-no because has no fiber and you just get an enormous glucose um, spike. So, you know, blueberries, strawberries are, 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 are okay. Uh, grapefruit is okay. Would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. 100%. The more fiber in the food, the better, uh, uh, and no juices and it's terrible you go to school and you see these kids all drinking orange juice and they're getting these huge spikes of the sugar and then they get plummet again and they get reactive hypoglycemia and they get all this uh, all this behavioral disorder and you know you won't believe it I'm, I'm a cardiologist but i have so many friends with children i change their diet and the moms and dads come to me my kid is much better in school. His grades are much better now. He's well-behaved. Some amazing things that begin just by changing the diet. So a lot of the behavior disorders in children, whether it's even, even ADDH, I've seen dramatic improvements in these kids just by changing the diet. Interesting. Now, here's a, 
Here's one for you, Dr. Gymnatis. You discourage corn, grains, and rice, Laura Emerson notes, but those foods are among the foundations of human society for 8,000 years. Are there some grains and rice-like foods today that are better choices like quinoa, millet, or another? Or should we eat none of these? And thank you for being here today. Oh, no, you're welcome. No, you can have all those grains when you get to your target, okay? So when you get down to your target, your insulin resistance is over, your, 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 your insulin levels are down and your weight has come down and your blood pressure is perfect without medications, your ACR triglyceride ratios are looking fantastic, your waist circumference has come down, your fatty liver is better. Yeah, you can have some of those as part of your meals. There's nothing wrong with those. But in general, when you're trying to lose weight, I stay away from those. I also stay away from them because they have a lot of branch chain amino acids. Branch chain amino acids are found in these corn products and they give you insulin resistance. They make you gain a lot of muscle. And th th that's why these animals get so fat when you, when you give them corn, right? Just think, how do you fatten a cow? How do you do it? You give them corn, that's how you do it. So that's why I don't like corn. So in over, most of my patients are overweight. So that's why I stay away from corn. And the other grains in general. So I'm gonna tell you, I do believe that wheat in general is not a very good grain unless it's whole, absolutely whole grain where it comes with the husks and the, the endosperm, the germ and the, and the outside, the bran, everything. Because a lot of patients who may not be gluten allergic, but they are wheat sensitive. And I've seen that when I cut out the wheat from the diet, their guts get better, the intestinal bacteria get better, the weight starts coming down, the insulin resistance starts getting better. So I'm not, a, I'm not fond of wheat um, in general. Cut down, you can have it, but cut it down, cut down. We just eat too, you know, we overdo everything. We just overdo it. We eat too much bread. You can put the bread in front of them, four slices are gone. What about sourdough? I've heard that's better. Sourdough, is, anything fermented is better because the bacteria already done half the job for you. So uh, sourdough, anything fermented, so look, sourdough, kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi, um, very good balsamic vinegar. These are all fantastic foods. Anything fermented, you should go for it. By the way, you were talking about oils earlier, but olive oil is different, correct? Olive, extra virgin olive oil is a good yeah. thing. It comes from trees. I, right? I, I agree with you. Olive oil you can have, just don't heat it too much. So it goes past the smoke point. And, and, and I'm gonna tell you something else about olive oil. Olive oil is not that good for you because, oh yeah, it's got monounsaturated because even meat has 40% monounsaturated fat. Did you know that? So it's not just the monounsaturated fat that's good for you. The real reason why I think that olive oil is so good for you is all the phytonutrients that are in it. It's the phytonutrients and the phytonutrients are not consumed by you, but, but by your bacteria in your gut. So when you're taking olive oil, you're still getting the oil. And if you have an obesity problem, you're still gonna gain weight perhaps because it may add to your total caloric count, maybe, maybe. So I tell people that, look, it's very healthy for you because it's got phytonutrients in it, which is not found in all your other seed oils. That's why, that's why it's green. It smells a little bit. It's got that pungent taste also sometimes. That's great stuff, have it. All right. Now, Alan Freilich wants to know, is it true that one should lift weights while doing intermittent fasting? And, and says yes, and you should do it right before you break your fast, because that's when your growth hormone level is gonna be highest. Uh, you know, best way to increase your growth hormone level naturally is to fast. That's what, so you can take growth hormone shots, it'll cost you $4,000 a month, but the best way to do it is to fast and fast, and you should exercise. Now, if you want endurance, then 
the meal can help you because you'll be able to do more. But that's not the goal here. The goal here is to build muscle, positive nitrogen balance. You want it, you should exercise in a fasting state. Finish, then go home and then have your meal. That's good to know. That's good to know. Okay. Now, Tracy Bishop wants to know, does raw honey count as sugar? Also, if you are wearing a glucose monitor, what numbers should you look to in order to know how food affects your body? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. So raw honey is sugar. After all, it's fructose and should only be consumed occasionally in small amounts. Because before you can get honey, you'd have to climb up that tree, get stung a few times, and maybe fall a few times. So it should be done very infrequently. So I'm not a big fan of honey um, because it's fructose. I know it's natural, but it wasn't naturally coming to me every day. In my Paleolithic years, I maybe came across it five times a year, maybe. So it shouldn't be consumed. And then the, the second part of the question that you're asking me is about the, um, can you just elaborate on that a little bit? You were saying, the, the second part of your question was regarding. Oh, the, um, she wanted to know um, if you're wearing a glucose monitor, what glucose numbers monitor. should you look to in order to, to know how food affects your body? Okay, the numbers, the numbers. So if your glucose spikes over 200 after a meal, you're already insulin, you have a problem with insulin resistance and glucose intolerance. Your numbers should not go above 180. If it's between 150 and 180, I tell the patients that you're probably gonna be all right. So yeah, I'm very conservative about, uh, about this. And you'll be surprised that two people or three people eating the same food have variable responses to glucose, the same amount, and yet they all react differently. But it's all got to do with our individual physiology and our microbiome as well. So the answer is 200. Anything, anytime you eat and it goes over 200, that's a big red flag. Between 150 and one and 200, that is also a red flag. And you need to be careful that this food is just not too good for me. Doctors, I have to tell you, we're coming up to the top of the hour. Can you stay over just a little bit? I'd like to get a few more of these in. Yeah, we've got a few more minutes. Yeah. Oh, good. All right. Um, so Elaine Flanagan says, I am confused. How do I get all the necessary nutrients when eating once a day? Also, I'm already at a good weight. How do I do it and not lose weight? I don't eat sugar. Yeah, no, no, she's, it's absolutely wrong. You get all your nutrition that you need, you'll absorb more and your microbiome will be better. And therefore that is also gonna help you to get all your micronutrients. There's not a single patient I've known who's done intermittent fasting, eating only once a day, who then turns out to have nutrient deficiencies. If he does, it's either because that patient has undetected celiac disease or he's got some other issues going on inside the patient. No, the, and you, your liver is, look, we were designed to grab these nutrients when they do come and store them in our liver. Patients tell me, oh my gosh, how am I going to survive? I said, you know, your liver has more than six to eight months of vitamins stored in it. Your liver does. Your whole body has at least six to eight months worth of fat stored on it. So you're not going to run out of anything. So I, I just reassure them that this is not going to be a problem. So long yeah, as that so I think basically meal. we've been socialized to believe that we need to eat three meals a day. And yeah. as Pradeepa said, that's not physiologic. And so it is truly astonishing that people can eat one meal a day of nutritious food. It's really important. It has to be high density nutritious food. And you actually don't lose weight. 
and um, you don't get hungry and you feel well and healthy. Um, some people may need to eat, have a w eating window of two or three or four hours. That's also okay. Yeah, no, I have to agree with that. You don't have to have just one meal only in one hour. You can spread it out over four hours. So you're having so your total caloric intake, hmm, maybe a little bit less, but nutrient dense foods you should consume. Exactly what Paul said. So you've got to eat the right right uh, foods, and then when you do eat, don't don't eat and get up still hungry. You eat till you're satisfied. It's one meal a day. So remember now, if you had that same meal while you already had lunch and dinner and uh, breakfast that day, and you're not in a fasting state and you had that same meal, you're gonna get a huge insulin spike, okay? Having fasted that whole day, eating that same meal in that evening, you're gonna get a much attenuated insulin spike. So you're gonna put less of that into storage. So because you're putting less of that into storage, right? You partition your, your calories through insulin. So because you're putting less of it into storage, more is available to you, you feel better, more energy, and you don't gain the weight. Whereas the first scenario, you partition 50% of it away, let's say, you're gonna gain weight and you're still feeling lousy afterwards. So the other thing is the order in which you eat the food, Betsy, which is really important. And the, the glucose goddess has really good data on this. So you want to start a meal with greens and fiber and roughage and then move on to the protein and then to move on to the starch. And that flattens the glucose curve quite significantly. So you don't want to start a meal off with starch and bread. It's the probably the worst thing possible to do every restaurant there you go put the bread on the table right that's the first thing they yeah, do so they, they do that for a good reason because what they do is they give you the starch which causes your glucose to spike which makes you hungry so that's what they're doing to increase your appetite so you eat more so the worst thing to start off a meal the worst thing is to start off with a carbohydrate yeah, no, absolutely. So it's the fiber. Remember, it's the soluble and insoluble fiber that gets down to your duodenum and it masks, uh, it goes on the walls. So the K cells, which are in the duodenum, they don't see all those calories inside because there's all that fiber still you know, forming a mesh. So therefore you get a lesser uh, signal to the pancreas to produce insulin. That is why fiber is so good. And it's missing in every processed food is the fiber. And that is why the food comes down and hits the duodenum and the case cells go crazy. And the next thing you know, you get a huge insulin spike because of the signal from the duodenum down to the, uh, to the pancreas is to do with the case cells. Okay, Jeff K wants to know, Dr. Gymnatis, do you give your patients evidence of changes from their blood counts? That data would help me change seeing the evidence in a measured way. Always, I give them a hemoglobin A1C to show that it's coming down. I show them the body mass index coming down. So th these two things I always do anyway. Um, I show them the triglycerides coming down. They always go down, triglycerides go down. I show them that the HDL goes up and I, Show them the data. Triglyceride HDL ratio is the biggest predictor of cardiovascular disease. Look, this the blood pressures. So I show them that. In terms of lab work, you know, if your liver function tests were off, let's say your SGPT was uh, fifty, I can show that that's also come down. So that you know, so I show them these parameters. But the biggest one that I use to motivate the patients in my practice most of the time is showing the hemoglobin A1Cs, and that's why I did that thing on the on the grade study where they gave these drugs and they they brought hemoglobin A1C down by 0.3, and they were all clapping their hands. And I'm saying, well, wait a second, I bring it down by 3.0. That's what we need. So I show them the numbers. Yeah, 
You have to. You have to. Patients need a lot of feedback motivation. Elizabeth Bram would like to know, she says, I am 74 years old. Is fasting from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. every day enough? Yeah, it depends on your condition now. If you don't have rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, you don't have obesity, insulin resistance, you don't have severe coronary arteries, you're pretty, pretty decent, healthy 74-year-old otherwise, hmm? uh, then a 12-hour fast is actually very good for those patients. So you're doing it as a preventive measure. But if you have any of these conditions that I just mentioned just now, including rheumatoid, connective tissue disease, all these, then definitely you need to probably increase your, 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 your fasting and, uh, and do some more serious intermittent fasting. Now, someone from social media wants to know, my understanding is that fasting is not recommended for anyone with Hashimoto's syndrome. Is this true? I have not heard of anything like that. In fact, when I do fasting on those patients through the gut and the improvement in the gut and that, I mean, the microbiome as well as the permeability, I'm seeing that these patients have Hashimoto's get better. In fact, I did that to my own family members, change their diet and Hashimoto's gets better. Yeah, so Betsy, I would agree that, you know, it's an autoimmune disease and probably one of the best approaches to autoimmune disease is Dietary change, intermittent fasting, real food is probably the best way to deal with autoimmune diseases. All right. Um, now, here's another question about social media. It says, it seems some people are being hurt by fasting, which may be driven by adrenal cortisol issues. When it goes wrong, it goes horribly wrong with people reporting a relapse in post-vax symptoms. How can we tell if fasting is safe for us? So, so they're getting a relapse in the post-vaccination syndrome symptoms? Yeah, well, now this is something that Pierre has certainly been treating a lot of. And Paul, I guess you've been... Yeah, uh, so I don't really it. understand. I had heard that question about, you know, causing adrenal crisis um, and adrenal failure. I, I have not heard of such a thing. So, you know, I think what Pradeep said right in the beginning, do it slowly, do it in a controlled way, do it as a lifestyle intervention. Don't just suddenly start doing it. Let your body adapt to the changes. And obviously you got to deal with stress. And I think it, it fundamentally can improve almost every medical condition. Apart from type one diabetes, I'm not sure of any other disease, any disease that isn't improved by a good diet, real food, and intermittent fasting. So well summarized, Paul. You're, you're great. Uh, Another so viewer says, sort of a variation on the theme, said, said, I've tried the diet four times. I get jittery, lightheaded. People tell me to work through it. Why do I want to stress my adrenals? And that's not necessarily your adrenals that's doing that. Uh, it, it's your dopamine center, it's your reward center in your brain. You're, you're basically addicted and you really need to pay attention to all the things we said earlier on and, and, and talk to somebody who's been through it before or talk to your provider if he's into this type of stuff. But no, 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 absolutely no. That jittiness yeah. and all that, it's not because the sugar went down. It's not because your blood pressure dropped. It's because you are going through withdrawal. That's all it is. Yeah. And I think what Pradeep said at the beginning was so important. You need to change your diet first. You first need to, you know, eat real foods, eat real foods three times a day, eat high nutrient dense food, and then slowly, you know, start eliminating one meal a day every, every now and then. And I think if you do it 
slowly, so, you know, some people may can do it quicker than others. You will adapt to it. This is the last question. You're going to like this one. What is your view on intermittent fasting, reducing one's sex drive or mental performance? Can it also <laughs> reduce muscle mass? Oh, totally wrong on all three counts. Okay. Totally, <laughs> totally, totally wrong. Don't even, I, it's just, that's terrible. In fact, the best way to increase your growth hormone levels is actually to do intermittent fasting. If you're losing muscle mass, hmm, then you're not taking enough protein, number one. And number two, you're probably approaching a starvation diet. No, so you need to look at that. You shouldn't be losing. Look, the point in ketosis is to burn the fat, not the muscle. Now, inevitably, inevitably, you're going you're gonna to burn some protein, right? And you're going to burn fat as well. But if you do the exercises at the same time, you will maintain muscle mass. You've got to maintain muscle mass. And I agree, you don't want to lose muscle mass. That's total. As for the brain, no, the best way to increase your BDNF levels, which is brain-derived neurotropic factors, is actually fasting. Fasting increases your, your acuity, it increases your, 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 your reflexes, your everything. Why? Because nature wants you to go out there and make your next kill not make you sleepy. Otherwise, if you don't eat, you're just going to crawl into your cave and die, right? No, it makes you go. So BDNF actually goes up and, and, and muscle growth hormones actually go up. So no, if you're losing muscles, you're doing something wrong there. And what about okay. the sex, the sex drive? The sex, oh, 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 that's the most important thing. Oh, oh, it actually increases your sex drive. It really does. Well, now you've heard it, folks. Why, 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 why does it, there's multiple mechanisms for that, right? Uh, there's multiple mechanisms for that. Um, nature wants you to obviously uh, preserve the species. But besides that, when your LDL goes up a little bit more, you know, it's so important to feed into all your, your cholesterol is very important for the production of, of all your sex hormones as well. And your cholesterol actually goes up, doesn't go down. It actually goes up a little bit. So no, it actually improves things. It, uh, it's, it's not the other way around. I have seen patients who've done my intermittent fasting and they came back and they were trying to get, um, you have a baby, the men, the sperm counts actually went up. Sperm counts, could be, by the way, we have an epidemic of that, low sperm counts. And we wonder why, it's metabolic syndrome again, too much fructose as well. So sperm counts have actually improved on my patients who've done, because um, they come back and tell me that, oh, I went to get a check done and they said I'm better. I said, yes, you are. You're physiologically better. Pradipa, I want to thank you. Um, this is really yes. interesting. Yes. Um, I learned a fortune. I hope our audience learned a fortune. And you, you are a pleasure to speak with. So Indeed. you know what? You're going to have to come back. We're going to have to do this again. And Absolutely. Absolutely. You have the, you have the world's valuable. most infectious smile that I've ever seen. So you look so happy. And I'm going to get the guide. I'm getting on it. I'm going to cut out. I've been too much fruit, too many figs, too much. Oh, only the berries. That's all I can have. Oh, it's going to hurt a little bit. But anyway, I, I can. I think it's easier to not eat at all than mm. to eat just a little bit. Imagine all day long thinking about, I'm going to cut calories here, I'm going to do this. You go crazy. No, in fact, just go have your one meal and you have a great time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's the challenge. All right. Thank you so much. And Paul, you're an inspiration, you. you know?
Thank you. I have a few things, folks, that I have to announce because we've got some good things to tell you here before we uh, before we sign off. And we got a really nice video at the end. One of our wonderful my stories you're going to want to see. So thank you, Docs. I'm going to go back to the uh, announcements here. Now then, our guide, the Intermittent Fasting Guide is up. It's available. If you couldn't take notes fast enough tonight, who could? Uh, you know, it can be a lot to take in. And remember, we have the good news, the brand new Intermittent Fasting Guide. The FLCCC's version is available as of now. It helps answer questions like how to begin fasting, when and what to eat, how to deal with hunger, and much, much more. You can find it now on our website under the tools and guides section or at this link, which is, you know, genie.us forward slash eat well hyphen guide. And of course, you can always watch this program again because it will it is recorded and we'll have it up uh, again tomorrow. And it'll be you'll be able to see it on our website and we'll send links around to all of I think you'll all get it in newsletters. So at any rate, you'll definitely want to see this one again. Now, long story short, all of our doctors are passionate about intermittent fasting and our beloved Dr. Bean is no exception. While he has focused a lot of long story shorts on the topic of autophagy and fasting, in this latest episode, he examines another fascinating topic, the effects of alcohol and chronic stress on brain health. You want to make sure to watch that one on our FLCCC Rumble and Odyssey channels or visit flccc.net forward slash Dr. Bean. Now then, we have a reminder about our Anesthesia Twitter Space event coming up. It's a quick reminder, our wonderful Christina Moros, a nurse, CRNA nurse with 22 years of clinical experience as a nurse anesthetist, has created a new anesthesia guide. We really recommend you give it a read and then save the date for Friday, April 21st at 11 a.m. Eastern time when Christina will be hosting a one-hour Twitter space to answer all of your questions about the guide. You can set a reminder for the space by visiting genie.us forward slash anesthesia hyphen space hyphen FLCCC. And with that, let's bring on Christina and our other nurses, Pamela Burnham, RN, Scott Rogers, another RN, Samantha Hanks, RN, Stephanie Lansiki, RN, and Emily Bender in RN, who is in training to join our team for answering all of these questions. And Christina, of course, is not only the CRNA, she's our ringleader. So how, how did it go tonight? Were you... Um, Busy, busy, busy. Everybody cares about this subject. You know that. We were very busy. We had um, about 170 questions and we answered about 120 of them. So we did, we all worked really hard tonight. I And, and you're very familiar with this subject. You oh, have- I love intermittent fasting. It has really revolutionized my life personally. And um, yeah, it's great. All right. Well, we thank you for, again, volunteering your time to help all of these people. We are delighted to have you here. And uh, some of you will be, uh, I hope all of you will be down in Texas at the conference that's coming up very soon. Um, we, We love all of these nice young people. They're energetic and bright and 
so helpful. Anyway, we'll, we thank you. Now then, we are hiring folks. Um, if you or someone you know is a talented WordPress developer who loves the FLCCC and our mission, well, Here's the, here's the news. We are looking for a full-time senior developer who can work magic with WordPress plugins to join our incredible team. If you think you might be a good fit, please send your resume to careers at flccc.net. Now then, and also for all of you out there, send us your story. You know, stories are the life blood of humanity. They tie us together, open our hearts, bring us back to what's really important in life. And perhaps more than ever over these past three years, they are reminders of both the empowering and tragic, transformative and heartbreaking situations we've all found ourselves in. If you have a story that you would like to share, please send it to my story at flccc.net. And on that note, we will end on one of those stories. We thank you all so much for joining us tonight and we will see you back here next Wednesday and watch Jessica's story. She's wonderful. Thank you. Good night. Hi, my name is Jessica Lombardo. I'm 44 years old, and I'm an American living in Amsterdam since 2005. I've been following COVID since the early days with growing disbelief. In December 2020, I saw Dr. Corey at the U.S. Senate hearing testifying so bravely and honestly to bring ivermectin to light, only to have his testimony censored by YouTube as misinformation. On the back of this, I was following Dr. Andrew Hill, advisor to the World Health Organization, with hope based on his own social media posts, only to see him do a complete 180 due to a $40 million grant to his university in Liverpool from Unitaid, an organization that receives hundreds of millions from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I was and am enraged and saddened in the face of this widespread and unbelievable amount of crimes against humanity unfolding. Through the winter of 2021, I was following Real Not Rare every day and reading the heart-wrenching stories in disbelief at how horribly the medical community was shunning severely vaccine-injured individuals. One day in January 2022, I read a story that was so heartbreaking, I decided I needed to find that person and try to help her. She was a 30-year-old former ICU nurse who went from being an avid athlete and working double shifts in the ICU to feeling like she would die every day, having all of her medical community turn their back on her and being on the brink of suicide. In 2015, after developing debilitating neuropathy myself from a virus, I had a very successful experience with ozone therapy. So I sent her some information on the therapy and being an ICU nurse in the conventional realm, she had never heard of it. Then I started reaching out to more vaccine injured victims every day. And by now I have been in direct contact with over 60 injured victims to varying degrees. And I've offered support via wider networks and support groups. 
These victims need to be heard, believed, supported, and treated. And sadly, they are not getting that from their healthcare system, government, or society in general at all. I provide support to let them know they are not alone, not crazy, not to blame, and that their body is a miracle and they should never give up on healing. I've helped set up fundraisers, connected victims with each other for support and coaching, and follow up on the tougher cases to keep hope alive. My loving family is also very fortunately in a position to every now and then offer financial support along with me to the victims, to FLCCC and other such platforms. I share treatment plans such as the FLCCC's iRecover, World Council for Health Detox Spike Intel, and functional medical practitioner protocols. I also encourage victims and coach them in fasting for cellular healing, which I was pleased to see as the number one recommended tool in FLCCC's protocol. To help arrange care, I locate and contact integrative or functional care clinics in the victim's vicinity and ask the relevant upfront questions and I set up appointments. If they need it, I'll make sure the victims get key supplements, cover un uninsured treatments and send them healthy food. Lastly, I connected several victims to the REACT 19 Care Fund who generously grant up to $10,000 per qualified victim in medical cost coverage. I've also held a REACT 19 Care Fundraiser in my home. I believe this is my soul's purpose and this is why I'm here on earth today. Dr. Corey, Dr. Merrick, Kate, Christina, and all the FLCC Alliance caretakers are heroes for me, my family, and humanity, and we are honored to support you. Thank you.